Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining. In today's episode, we're going to be doing a deep dive into my portfolio. I have $315,000 in this portfolio. It currently stands at $59,000 of gains. And I want to go over four companies that I am very bullish on. These are companies that I want to own, and I'm buying into these companies. I'm putting a significant amount of my capital into these four companies. So I want to go over all of them in this episode and explain what I see as the future of these companies, explain why I'm so bullish on them, and why I'm personally putting a lot of money into them. Now, before we jump into these four specific stocks and the reason that I'm investing in them, I want to do a little bit of a precursor here. I want to listen to one clip from an investor called Monish Bry, who is a big-time value investor. He's heavily influenced by Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. In fact, he may just be the biggest fan of Warren Buffett ever. He paid $600,000 for a charity lunch with Warren Buffett, and he really just idolizes them. He tried his best to emulate and improve upon their investing strategies, which led him to having a net worth of over $100 million. So it was very successful. And for that, he's very thankful to Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett. He credits his success to their teachings. And Manish Babrai has a lot of advice to share, a lot of things that he's learned where he thinks that investors have gotten things wrong. He thinks that they aren't thinking about investments the right way. He likes to invest in businesses as if he's a founder of the company where most people look at businesses from a third-party perspective. Here's a little clip of him talking about this concept. If you own a business like Walmart, don't fixate on the multiple. Don't fixate that this is trading at 25 times earnings or 20 times earnings or whatever else. Ask yourself a simple question. Is the business getting better? Is the moat getting deeper? Is the moat getting wider? That's the first thing. He points out that many investors today are way too focused on different multiples and different valuations of the company. And that seems a little bit against the grain. We should all be value investors. We should all be focusing on these multiples. But he's saying just the opposite. He's saying that we focus too much on P.E. ratios and multiples, and that's not the mindset of a founder of a company. And Monish says, we should not be focused on P.E. ratios unless they become egregiously priced. If the business is intact, unless, unless the pricing is egregious, it's gone crazy. Like it becomes like GameStop or something. Just keep the stock. Use the same framework that the founders and the entrepreneurs who started these businesses use. Monish uses the example of Walmart as a company where only the founder and the founder's children, the Walton family, had a founder's mindset. They're the only ones that held on to this stock through thick and thin. Everyone else, every third-party investor, either bought in or sold out at different points throughout this stock's history. It was the Walton family that held on to the stock through decade after decade, even when it went through long periods of time of underperformance. They didn't seem to be worried about the specific metrics and day trading the stock and looking at all the valuations continually with it. They just held on to the company with the founder mindset. And as long as the company was growing, they continued to hold this stock. So that's what I'm trying to focus on with my investments. I'll look at valuation metrics. I'll try to get companies for the best deal possible. But what I really want to do is establish large positions in companies that I think meet all those characteristics that Monish is talking about. Companies that are growing their moats, companies that are growing in market share, companies that the business itself is getting more established and more dominant in this new world that we live in. Now, let's go over the first company. This one is in the tech and cloud computing category. 
and it's Microsoft. And you can see that I have a pending buy of this company right now. It's $260 that I was paid in dividends today. That's going back into Microsoft. Now there's a lot of reasons why I'm buying Microsoft, but it comes down to two major reasons. The first one is I think that it's one of the most high quality companies in the world with the most predictable future and one of the widest moats that exists. And the other one is that I currently believe that it's undervalued. So Microsoft, in my assessment, has both of those characteristics. It is not only a top-tier, high-quality company, but I think that it's trading at a discount. The first thing that I want to highlight with Microsoft in particular is its market position and the way that it's interacting with the government and with the public. Microsoft has ran underneath the covers a little bit. It's not really being targeted the way that Apple is or Google or even Amazon or Facebook. Facebook is certainly receiving the brunt of public targeting. The company is being labeled as big tobacco, toxic for society. Not a company that helps out small businesses, but a company that harms girls' self-esteem. That's what's going on with Facebook right now. Meanwhile, in Microsoft land, they're off doing their own thing. They're not in front of the government. They're not facing antitrust legislation, even though Microsoft arguably has one of the biggest competitive advantages in the entire world. They're probably the business with the widest moat. The Standard & Poor's rates them as more credit worthy than the US government. This company is as solid as it gets. It doesn't face much competition in my opinion, but yet they are not being targeted with antitrust legislation. On top of that, they're buying smaller companies left and right. Microsoft acquires Ally.io, a productivity software that tracks remote work. So without any type of pushback, Microsoft continues to grow its moat, acquire more talent and more businesses left and right. Now, of course, we've all seen the charts of their revenue growth. It's like a staircase. It goes up every single year, year over year. Their base software, just their Microsoft productivity and business software, that increases in sales every single year on pace. The intelligent cloud sector is even faster growing. This is a huge market with Microsoft Azure. And even their personal computing segment is growing as well every single year. And they just released the new generation of Xbox as well as some new personal computing devices. So this should continue to grow on pace in the future. Overall, this business is one that grows. Microsoft may be massive, but this is a growing business. Now you'd naturally assume that the massive size of Microsoft being one of the biggest companies in the world means that its revenue growth needs to slow down. It's just the laws of physics. As things get bigger and bigger, they typically move a little bit slower. It takes more energy to keep them moving. But this doesn't seem to be the case with Microsoft. Comparing it to two other companies that are much smaller in market cap and should be growing a lot faster, you can see that their growth really isn't that much faster than Microsoft's. Take a look at Tesla, for instance. It is true that they're growing their revenue a little bit faster than Microsoft's, but keep in mind that Tesla has gross margins of 24% and Microsoft has gross margins of 70%. So Microsoft is not only growing its revenue at an incredible speed, but the margins this company keeps for themselves is incredible. Microsoft has a 35% profit margin and a 40% operating margin. These are incredible margins to have for a business growing this quickly. Another company we can compare Microsoft's revenue to is Salesforce here in yellow. Despite the fact that Salesforce is roughly one-tenth of the size of Microsoft, they're growing their revenue around the same pace. So the continued growth of these companies does not seem to correlate with the company size. Microsoft is not being limited by its massive size. One of the most exciting parts of Microsoft is their cloud gaming. This is a massive growth path for this company, and they're launching cloud gaming in all different markets in Australia, Brazil, Mexico, and Japan. Microsoft has a clear advantage, a clear lead in cloud gaming over the other big tech companies like Apple, 
Amazon, or Google. And I really don't believe that the massive lead that Microsoft has in cloud gaming is being appreciated or priced into this stock by the market. Because I think the market has a very difficult time understanding the mechanics of how cloud gaming works and which companies will benefit from it. This is from Matthew Ball's blog. He says, cloud game streaming is also incredibly costly and computationally intensive. This is why the leading players in the space today are those that operate the largest cloud gaming platforms in the world, namely Microsoft, Google, and Amazon. These are the three companies that have huge cloud infrastructure. And as such, we rule out 90% of the competition. Most companies in the market today don't have the massive cloud infrastructure that Google, Amazon, and Microsoft do. So realistically, these are three of the only companies that have a real chance at implementing cloud gaming. He gives an example of other companies relying on Microsoft's cloud infrastructure. Even though Sony PlayStation sells far more consoles than the Xbox, they still had to form a partnership with Microsoft. They're still reliant on Microsoft Azure. And not only does Microsoft Cloud Gaming Services benefit from Azure's operating scale, it literally uses unshelled Xboxes as servers. This provides Microsoft with substantial cost advantage and means that game publishers do not need to produce distinctive builds of their games to support Xbox's cloud platform. Google Stadia, meanwhile, is built on bespoke Linux-based servers, and the need to partly retool games for this stack is partly why publishers haven't leaned into this service. This creates a vicious circle for Stadia. Fewer games means fewer players, which means there's no reason for publishers to develop for Stadia. So Microsoft doesn't only have the advantage over other companies that don't have cloud infrastructure, they even have the advantage over other big tech companies that do have cloud infrastructure. Now Microsoft is the subscription king. Microsoft Online Player Network, Xbox Live, has over 100 million digital subscribers across PC, Xbox, and Minecraft in 2017. That's the last data we have. So this is even a few years back, they had 100 million subscribers. Today, Game Pass has nearly 20 million subscribers, and earlier this year, Xbox added free cloud streaming to all Game Pass subscribers. This means that for $15 a month, gamers can play modern AA or AAA games on nearly every device they own, from old Xboxes to low-end Androids and aging iPhones. Moreover, Microsoft's offerings are backed by more than 15 first-party studios, the third most popular AAA console, native integration into the most used PC operating systems globally, and ownership of the second most popular virtual platform globally, Minecraft. And from a technical perspective, Microsoft operates what is probably the world's most sophisticated cloud gaming stack and recently brought together its many disparate divisions to produce one of the most significant pro-metaverse experiences in the industry. Microsoft's cloud gaming stack is currently unparalleled. They have enormous advantages over other non-cloud computing companies, and they have a big advantage even over other cloud computing companies. This company is the leader in cloud gaming, and until that changes, I think that this company is being undervalued. Now, one interesting note on the subject of Microsoft is why has Warren Buffett never purchased this company? He's known about the company. He knows Bill Gates, the owner of it. Why did he go so heavily into Apple and not Microsoft? Well, he's asked this very question in one of his shareholder meetings, and this is his reply. Particularly since Bill has joined the board, but even, even earlier than that, because of our friendship, it would be... It just would be a mistake for Berkshire to buy Microsoft because if something happened a week later, a month later, in terms of them having better earnings than expected or making an acquisition, anything, both Bill and I 
would incorrectly, but would be would be a target of suggestions and accusations, perhaps even that somehow he had told me something or vice versa. I stay away from. I try to stay away from a few things, just totally, because uh, the the inference would be drawn that that we might have talked. I might have talked to somebody about something. So I, I've I've told the I've told the fellows that Ted and Todd, for example, that there are just a few things that are off the list uh, because they, there'd be a lot of people that wouldn't believe us if something good immediately happened after we bought it. And of course, we to buy a lot of stock, it can take six months to buy it or something of the sort. Uh, we just don't need it. Uh, but both that and my stupidity have cost us a lot of money. <laughs> the reason that Warren Buffett has never invested in Microsoft is not because he hasn't seen the value and its moat and its dominance. It's because he's close friends with the previous CEO and current stakeholder in the company. He's friends with Bill Gates. And there would be accusations and questions about his relationship and his investment if good news were to come out after he made an investment. Warren Buffett has established his reputation for decades, and he doesn't want to jeopardize it even with a good investment like Microsoft. I truly believe that if Warren Buffett wasn't worried about his image and relationship with Bill Gates, he would be an investor in Microsoft. He would own a substantial amount of this company. So in qualitative terms, I think that Microsoft as a business is as good as it gets. They have a growing moat. They have growing revenues, growing EBITDA, growing free cash flow, growing net income, and a shrinking share count. So as you own the company, you gain more ownership by them buying back shares. And Microsoft plans to buy back $60 billion worth of shares and raise their dividends. This company's doing everything in a shareholder-friendly way. And of course, the dividend history is as good as it gets. They raised the dividend 10% plus every single year, and they have a very low 28% payout ratio. So not only does this company fundamentally have some of the strongest qualities that I've seen in any business, but it's also trading at a price that I think is reasonable, even undervalued, a price that allows us to buy in at a reasonable valuation right now. The company's trading at $2.94 a share, and Morningstar, for instance, says that the fair values around 325. I personally believe that Microsoft will be trading at 350 next year. And my assumptions on this are pretty simple. I think that Microsoft will trade at a 35 PE next year, and I think the company will have $10 of earnings in 2023. And so with that Ford PE ratio, I think the price will be 350, which means that buying at today's price, it has 20% upside from today to next year. That's my valuation on it. So that's a little bit of why I already hold this company and why I continue to buy it. I think it offers the right mix of value and quality that I like to find in every company that I make major positions. I'm going to be increasing my stake in Microsoft as much as possible while it's trading in this territory. And I'd be interested to know, for those of you that are bears on Microsoft, what is the bear case for this company? Really, what is it? What could go south with this company right now? I'd be interested to hear your feedback. I think the only reasonable bear case is that Microsoft could see a multiple contraction, that it could trade from a 35 multiple to a 30 or a 27. But even in that scenario, I'd feel fine holding this company as long as it remains solid. And like Monish says, you shouldn't really fixate over the PE ratio of amazing companies as long as they're reasonably priced, as long as it's not astronomical. And in the case of Microsoft, with a 34 PE ratio, 
I don't think it's astronomical. I think it's very reasonable and even undervalued. So I'll continue to buy this company. Now, next up in number two of companies that I'm betting heavily on, we have in the real estate category, Vici. This is a company that I know you're all sick of me talking about. I see the comments, people saying, oh, you always talk about Vici, Joseph, every episode. I won't spend a lot of time on this one. I just want to mention that I increased my stake further in this company. Right now, I have around $29,500 worth of Vici. This is over a thousand shares of this company. It's moved to my second largest holding right under Apple. My bet on Vici is pretty simple. I don't currently own any physical real estate outside of my house. That's my only physical real estate that I own. I have no real estate investment properties. So I want to have 20% of my portfolio in REITs, in real estate. And when I look at the different options, Vici right now I think presents the best mix of value and quality. The company is a high quality company trading at a low valuation with a reasonable payout ratio. And I think it will grow in the future both its dividends and capital appreciation. I want to just have it pay me dividends every single quarter that I can use to fund other opportunities I see in the market. So I have my position built in this company. I don't plan on adding any more as of now, and we'll keep up with this one and see how it does over the next couple years. In number three is one of my longtime favorite companies, and it continues to be one that I think has one of the brightest futures of any publicly traded company in the world. That is in the consumer category, And it's Costco. I think that Costco remains the best physical retailer in the world. They've combined a unique warehouse experience with top quality brand imaging, top quality customer service, and a subscription revenue. There's no other retailer that's been able to do it the same way Costco has. Now, unfortunately for us, Costco's being noticed by other investors. They're starting to finally catch on. They're starting to realize that this company has attributes that other retailers do not have. They have a flywheel that drives growth. Costco posts 9.4% comparable sales growth in September in a slight acceleration from August. Their month-over-month sales continue to go up even as other retailers are struggling. UBS analyst Michael Lasser says Costco has shown no signs of slowing down even as other retailers are giving back some of last year's sales growth. Costco continues to grow despite what other businesses are doing. That's been the story of Costco since its beginnings. Now, I think that Costco has a lot of room to grow both in the U.S. and outside of the U.S. For instance, Walmart operates 10,500 stores. So there's over 10,000 Walmarts in existence. By comparison, Costco only has around 800. And I realize that Costco's are bigger, so there's probably never going to be as many Costco's as Walmarts. But that still leads me to believe that there's a lot of room for Costco to grow in the future. And I think that given the choice between Costco and Walmart or Smith's or Kroger's, I think that consumers will end up choosing Costco the majority of the time. I believe that Costco can take and consolidate market share from these other retailers. Costco also has ample room to grow within China. China's second Costco store is nearing completion, so they only have two open there. And the first one was beyond a massive success. They had to close it early because it was being swamped by people. The only Costco store in China right now has over 200,000 members for that one location. By comparison, the average within the US is 68,000 members. So this one location in China has well over double the amount of members as the average location in the US. This signifies a lot of demand. There's a lot of Chinese individuals out there that want to be Costco members. So in my opinion, Costco stands out as another wide moat subscription company that has one of the best brand images and business models in the world. There's a couple things that investors get hung up on with Costco, and one of them is the low starting yield. This company doesn't pay out a huge amount in its dividend yield. In fact, the starting yield right now is 0.7%. 
That's in line with a lot of tech companies. And as a dividend investor investing for that nice cash flow, you might be turned off by this 0.7% yield. So I want to highlight a few things with this dividend yield and why I think it's highly misleading. The first thing that I want to highlight is that Costco operates its dividends a little bit differently than most companies. They pay a very low normal dividend. So every quarter you only get 79 cents per share per quarter. That's how much they're paying right now. That's a low amount. But as you can see, this bar here stands out. This is a $10 per share dividend. That is incredibly high. This is one of the many special dividends that Costco has given out. In fact, in their 10-year history, Costco has given out this special dividend four different times. And their special dividend gets bigger and bigger as they have more free cash flow and they accumulate more cash. What they do is they hold that cash in case they need it, but then if they accumulate too much cash, they end up giving it back to the shareholder via a dividend. And this makes it so the calculation of the yield is a little bit misleading. For instance, if we look at Costco's actual yield with their special dividend in the trailing one year, it's 3%. So with these massive special dividends being given out every couple of years, Costco's yield spikes up super high. In 2013, their yield was 8%. In 2015, it was 4%. In 2017, it was 4%. And then in the past trailing one year, it was 3%. So Costco's yield bounces between pretty low and pretty high. If you were to average this out, I think that it really yields around 2 to 3%, which is a market-beating yield. And the nice thing about these special dividends is that it gives Costco more leverage and control over their cash flows. They don't necessarily have to pay out the special dividend on a set basis like their normal dividend. So their payout ratio remains very low and they only pay out their dividend when they have that extra cash. I actually think that this is a very conservative and smart way to run their business. Now the part where I run into issue with Costco is the price right now. I know that I don't want to fixate on P.E. ratios unless they're egregious, but Costco's trading at a 37.8 Ford P.E. ratio. This is higher than Microsoft, and Microsoft is growing a little bit faster than Costco, and I think that both of them are fantastic businesses. This is why I'm buying Microsoft right now and not Costco. Morningstar also talks highly about Costco, saying that they have a wide economic moat, they have exemplary capital allocation, but that they're simply overpriced right now. But as of right now, I do agree with Morningstar. I think that Costco's a little bit expensive, even for the quality of this company. So I plan on putting this stock as number one on my watch list. Now, the last company that I want to highlight that I haven't put too much focus on in this channel, but one that I plan on making a much bigger portion of my portfolio over time is Home Depot. This is a company that the more I do analysis on it, the more I like it. I think that it has a massive moat. It has a network effect. It's a heavily diversified business, even though it doesn't seem like it. They work a lot with contractors and individuals. They're big into everything from actually building a house or doing a big construction project or doing small home improvements. Home Depot does it all. And Home Depot is another retailer that I believe is heavily insulated from the threat of online retailers or Amazon. I don't think that Home Depot can become Amazon. Home Depot's already built out a large online technology stack for online retail, and they have a massive logistics network, and they sell a product that's very physical, very big, bulky products that are difficult to ship. Many of them are products that you have to pick up in stores. Home Depot is also one of these companies that seems to be somewhat indestructible. It's become a part of the U.S. fabric. It's like Procter & Gamble. It seems to be around for decade after decade through boom and bust, through recession or periods of growth. This company is always around, always posting profits. Now, the fundamentals of this company are about as good as it gets. It has a wide moat, 
has a huge network. They have growing revenues, growing EBITDA, growing free cash flow, growing net income, and a shrinking share count. So you're gaining more equity as they're doing share buybacks. So every major fundamental of this business is moving in the right direction. On top of that, they pay a starting yield of 1.96%, and this company has a history of aggressively raising their dividends. Back in 2011, the dividend that Home Depot paid was 25 cents per share per quarter. In their last quarter, they paid $1.65. That means that Home Depot has increased their dividend by over six times in the past 10 years. And while they've increased their dividend by six times, their payout ratio remains a modest 45%. That's a very safe payout. Now with a Ford PE ratio of 23, I believe that Home Depot is a pretty good bet. It's not a steal, it's not super undervalued. I think that it's trading at a fair valuation for a high quality company. So Home Depot is another company that I've outlined as one that I wanna have a lot bigger ownership in. I want this to be one of my top holdings, but the price isn't amazing right now. So I'm gonna have the same approach with Home Depot that I have with Costco. I'm gonna slowly dollar cost average into these companies unless some big deal comes up, unless they really start to trade down for some specific reason. But until they do, I'm gonna to continue to put the majority of my money in Microsoft and wait for these ones to get to a little bit better valuations. So those are the four companies that I'm making a bigger portion of my portfolio. And I know that it might not be as glamorous as the next startup company, the next hyped tech stock, the next Kathy Wood company, but these are companies that I think that you can own for a lifetime and steadily beat the S&P 500 by having that ownership mentality. So that's all for now, and I hope you enjoyed this update and a look at four of the companies that I'm going to be investing in pretty heavily. Let me know what you think. Am I missing something with these companies? Is there a bear case that I'm missing? Do you have any other companies that you think are better bets? Leave a comment below. I read through every single one of them, and I might respond to them in future episodes. But other than that, I'll see you in the next one.